Well, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we will almost do one verse this morning. (laughs) I have my new Legacy Standard Bible, and I did confirm the books are in the same order. So, glad to know that. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's pray for our time this morning. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for the word of God, these very first words in the new covenant revelation of the New Testament. Lord, as we begin a journey through this glorious gospel of Matthew, we pray, God, that we would see Christ in all of his glory. We pray that we would see our sin in all of its horror. We pray that we would see the cross in all of its beauty. So, Lord, we ask you this day to bless our minds and our hearts to be in tune with your truth that we might be faithful followers of Christ our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen. I love church history. I know many of you do too. And one of my heroes of the faith is a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was born in the city of Antioch, Syria in A.D. 347. Just a little note, that's the same city that the Apostle Paul was sent out from on his missionary journeys. Chrysostom was made the Archbishop of the Church of Constantinople, meaning he was the lead pastor of all the believers in this glorious city. It's modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. In fact, Chrysostom is a nickname. It means the golden-mouthed one, and he's considered one of the earliest known consistent examples of verse-by-verse expository preaching. And for many years, he took his people verse by verse through various books of the Bible, insistent on taking the Bible literally and historically. He rejected the allegorical method of Bible interpretation, which was so prevalent in his day. There can be no doubt that the most widely read of all of Chrysostom's sermons are his messages through the Gospel of Matthew. He preached 90 sermons through Matthew's Gospel, His introductory message had 17 points. He gave an overview of the purposes of the gospel. In fact, he gave a a nickname to the gospel. He called it the Good Tidings of Matthew. And in classic Chrysostom fashion, the end of his 16th point was a warning that his congregation had better listen or they were going to miss the blessings of Matthew. He said, How then, I pray thee, dost thou expect to obtain the blessings that are promised when thou dost not even attend to what is said? His church was packed to the gills with people eager to hear the word of God, particularly when he preached through the Gospel of Matthew. You see, the Gospel of Matthew cannot be underestimated in terms of its influence on the church. In the most ancient collections of New Testament books, Matthew is always placed first, 100% of the time. Initially, in the early church, the Gospel of Matthew was absolutely the most influential of all the Gospels. The New Testament scholar R.T. France, he noted that, quote, It is a fact that mainstream Christianity was, from the early 2nd century on, to a great extent, Matthean, or Matthew-like Christianity, that the gospel of Matthew essentially created the climate of the early church early on. 
It's no wonder that liberal scholars who scoff at the word of God for years now have been trying to make Matthew written much later. But early church tradition is very consistent that Matthew's gospel was written first. Likely 40 to 50 AD, just a few years after the ascension of Christ and the birth of the Christian church. Well, this morning I'd like to begin the process of exploring the book of Matthew together I'm going to take two messages to introduce the whole book, and then after the Steadfast Bible Conference, we'll begin walking through our first series in Matthew 1 through 4 that I'm calling The First Coming of King Jesus. We'll have about 14 more series through the Gospel of Matthew, but the first one is The First Coming of King Jesus, Matthew 1 through 4. Now, next week, I'm going to take a broad overview of the whole book. We're going to go every single chapter in the book to kind of get our feet wet and give you the lay of the land. But this morning, I'd like to take an even kind of higher view. I'd like to focus on the major thrust of Matthew, which our first series title reflects, the first coming of King Jesus. And I'd like to just focus on four facts about the first coming of King Jesus. I think it's going to be helpful to you to understanding the gospel of Matthew. Then these are very simple facts. They're easy to understand, but they're foundational. The first fact is that Matthew announces the kingdom. Now, I'll give them all to you up front, and then you can, we'll restate them. The first fact is that Matthew announces the kingdom. The second fact is that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. The third fact is that Matthew teaches the kingdom. Matthew teaches the kingdom. And the fourth fact is that Israel is the focus of the kingdom. Israel is the focus of the kingdom. So, we'll start and we'll repeat these. Matthew announces the kingdom. That's the first fact. Now, we'll learn more about Matthew himself in later messages, but suffice to say that he was a former sinful tax collector, one who extorted money from his fellow Jews on behalf of Rome, who controlled Israel at the time of the birth of Christ. The Gospels of Mark and Luke use Matthew's Jewish name, Levi, but Matthew always refers to himself as Matthew. That would be similar to us saying about ourselves, I am merely a sinner saved by grace. He always referred to himself by his sinner name, so to speak. Now, Matthew is clearly writing this gospel initially to an audience of Jews. There are many clues to this, and it's important to note this original audience because the original recipients of the revelation of the gospel of Matthew is concerning the the kingdom of God. Romans 3 says it was through the Jews that the oracles of God, the, the scriptures came But here are some clues that Matthew has written primarily and firstly to a Jewish audience. First of all, the vocabulary is Jewish. We have phrases such as Father in Heaven 15 times, Kingdom of Heaven 32 times. There are untranslated Aramaic terms in the Gospel of Matthew that a Jew would be familiar with, uh, Raka and Korbanus and so forth. We would see another clue that there's a, a Jewish genealogy to open Matthew. This is, and we'll read this whole genealogy next week. But the genealogy was, according to one of my seminary professors, quote, calculated to put a Gentile audience to sleep, but vital for the Jewish reader. It's very key for the Jew to read this, and we'll see this as we go. We also see that there's a very real sense in which Matthew functions historically as basically the next book in the history of Israel. It just continues chronologically where the Old Testament leaves off. We also see that there's a lot of Jewish information in the Gospel of Matthew that's unexplained. 
that a Jewish reader doesn't need explanations for some of these things, unlike the Gospels of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, for example, which continually gives explanations about Jewish things because it was written to a Gentile audience primarily. And probably most importantly, Matthew is saturated in the Old Testament. Matthew either directly quotes or makes references or allusions, mentions of the Old Testament text well over 100 times, as well as over a dozen times where Matthew says an Old Testament scripture is being fulfilled in Christ. And then we would see that the teaching of Jesus is clearly aimed at a Jewish audience. Jesus clearly expected these Jews to know the word of God, to obey the word of God, and to know the God of the word and to obey the God of the word. There's a clear expectation. Just a little side note, something wonderful Something glorious happens in Matthew. It's not the purpose of Matthew, but it happens. And it tells us the nature of the new covenant church. What is glorious that happens in Matthew is that there's something revealed in fuller form to the Jews than ever before. Something foreshadowed and seen in slight form in the Old Testament, but now now it's revealed and it's obvious in all its fullness and glory. And that is the fact that God is Trinity. That God is a triune God. That the Yahweh of the Old Testament has always been one God, three persons. God the Father is referenced 43 times in Matthew. God the Spirit is referenced 12 times. But the clear focus of Matthew, God the Son, 230 times. This is what the gospel is about. And just how should the reader know that Jesus is the very Son of God? Aside from the 230 direct references to Christ as the clear focus of the book, The Son of God proves his identity in Matthew in two major ways. First of all, Matthew contains five major blocks of teaching that that Jesus teaches, these long sections of teaching. We'll go over these next time. But this is teaching which astounded and shocked anybody listening, both believers and unbelievers. It was shocking to them because he didn't do something that all other Old Testament scholars did at the time. He didn't quote anybody else. He just taught the Bible. There's a second major way he proves his identity. Of the 37 recorded miracles of Jesus in all the Gospels, Matthew contains 21 of them. Now, many of the miracles are recorded in multiple Gospels. We understand that. But the opening of our New Testament with 21 miracles, this is so important. It's a key to identifying to Israel that the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah of the Old Testament, he's arrived and his miracles give credibility to his words. He even says in one, on one occasion, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to heal this man of his paralysis. And he proves who he is by his actions. And by the way, he gives a preview of what the kingdom could be like if Israel would merely accept him. A kingdom with no illness, no death, no misery. And so he previews this through the miracles. And think about this for a moment, the grace of God to send Jesus to present himself as Israel's king. Century after century after century of failure and rebellion and exile and more failure and rebellion. Finally, to the point that God said he would not speak prophetically to Israel for a time. And for four centuries, he was silent. And after all that, The Gospel of Matthew records the final old covenant prophet named John the Baptist. 
Matthew 3, 1 through 3, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How can the kingdom of heaven be at hand? Because the king is coming. How gracious of the Lord after century after century of unfaithfulness. God still sends a king to present himself to Israel. But sadly, Matthew records the story of the failure of Israel. The birth of the king is recorded in the first two chapters. The introduction to the king is recorded in chapters 3 through 7. The authority of the king is demonstrated in chapters 8 through 10. And the center of the book... Theologically, chapters 11, 12, and 13, these record Israel choosing to oppose their own king, to go against him, to push back, to rebel. Beginning near the end of chapter 13, all the way through chapter 19, Jesus begins withdrawing from the Jews. And you see something that he hadn't done previously. He begins commending the faith of Gentiles, and he begins to name Israelites, quote, the lost sheep of Israel. Chapters 19 through 26 records Israel's official total rejection of her king. And of course, Matthew ends climactically with the death and resurrection of Israel's king. So the king would not stay. The king would leave and he would return a second time. Fact number one, Matthew announces the kingdom. Fact number two, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He is the king of this kingdom. In Matthew 21, 1 through 5, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. When they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, why is this happening? Well, the text tells us. And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. The Gospel of Matthew shows that Jesus is the king. I want to show you eight ways that the Gospel of Matthew shows that Jesus is the king. First, the names of Jesus. The names of Jesus show that he's the king. There are numbers of different identifying names given to Jesus in the gospel that identify him as king. Jesus is called the son of God numbers of times by Satan, by demons, by Peter. And of course, Jesus calls himself the son of God. He's called the son of David, beginning with the very first verse of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is identifying his kingly lineage. Matthew Himself, two blind men, a Canaanite woman, and a large crowd are among the many who use this title of Jesus, the the son of David. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than one time per chapter on average in the Gospel of Matthew. What does this show? It shows his human qualification to be king. The king of Israel is not this invisible spirit that nobody can see. He is a human being. He's called the Christ or the Messiah by Matthew, by John the Baptist, by Peter, and by Pontius Pilate, interestingly. And finally, Jesus is called the King of the Jews, or the King of Israel, numbers of times. In fact, on his cross is posted a sign that says, this is the King of the Jews. So the names of Jesus. The second way Matthew shows Jesus is King, the identification of Jesus. The 
The identification of Jesus, Matthew 1 verse 1, makes a clear presentation of Jesus as king in several ways. Just the fact that Matthew goes to the trouble to include this genealogy shows Jesus' legal lineage through Joseph going back to David, and it demonstrates Matthew's intention to build the case for Jesus as the king of Israel. And this is very important because to any Jew, if you said, I can show you the king is, first question he's going to ask is, who is his father? And who is his grandfather? And how is he related to David? That would be the first question. Matthew identifies Jesus as Messiah, as the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now this verse... Chapter 1, verse 1 is also key in that it has the feel of continuing something. What does it continue? It continues Genesis 5, verse 1, the book of the generations of Adam. It's basically the same phrase. It's, it's continuing from Adam. And why is that important? Adam was created to rule as king over the earth. He was made in the image of God as God's representative, but he failed in his responsibility. And so, ever true to his own purposes, God would send another human representative to be king. But this time, the king would be a divine God-man, the very son of God himself. There's a third way we know that Jesus is king, the worship of Jesus. The worship of Jesus. Matthew records the wise men from the east coming to worship the king of the Jews. Chapter 2, verse 2 we see the appearance of the miraculous star for the benefit of the, the wise men to be able to find Jesus. It shows that God was behind orchestrating the worship of his son. This wasn't Jesus' idea. This wasn't a little newborn baby saying, hey, I'd like to be worshipped. It was God's idea. It was God's will. And when they found Jesus, they gave him gifts that one would give to a king, and they worshipped him as one would worship the son of God. There's a fourth way we know that Jesus is the king, the forerunner of Jesus. The forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist came as a forerunner, a herald, an announcer, announcing the coming of the king. Kings never just showed up in small towns or in cities. They all, always sent people ahead to say the king is coming. And John the Baptist was spiritually preparing Israel for the king, and he was warning those who would reject him as king. And in fact, when John baptized Jesus. God the Father confirms aloud the sonship of Jesus as the Spirit of God lit on Jesus. He said, this is my beloved Son. Fifth way we know Jesus is King, the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. Jesus endured the temptation in the wilderness and this victorious stand against the ruler of this world, Satan, it gave a, a foretaste of the ultimate victory that King Jesus would have over his enemy, both first at the cross and then at the end times. Gave a foretaste of that victory. There's a sixth way we know Jesus is the king, and that is the preaching of Jesus. The preaching of Jesus. The very first note about the preaching of Jesus that Matthew makes is that Jesus began calling for repentance, quote, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the kingdom is close. Come to the kingdom. Immediately, Jesus is giving us kingdom preaching. In the first recorded sermon of Jesus Christ in all of the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus begins training his subjects, training his disciples in the righteousness that's reflected in a kingdom believer. 
He immediately begins with the character qualification of a kingdom citizen, that he's poor in spirit, and his his descriptions in the Beatitudes are indicative of the qualities of a saved person, a citizen of the kingdom. So Jesus immediately is training and forming his subjects to God's standard of righteousness while he's still on earth. And this is a work that would be continued by his spirit after the ascension of Christ, and after the day of Pentecost. There's a seventh way we know Jesus is king, and we've alluded to this already, but that's the miracles of Jesus. The miracles of Jesus are are recorded in Matthew in key ways. They demonstrate Jesus' power as the God-man king. In chapter 8, a Roman centurion affirms Jesus' authority, calling him Lord, treating him with a a level of deference and respect reserved for a king. Jesus shows his rule over nature and over demons in chapter 8 as well. In chapter 9, Matthew demonstrates Jesus' authority to forgive sin, his power over disease, his power over death, his calling of loyal subjects to himself is an example, Matthew himself. The miracles of Jesus also did something else. It showed what a godly king does. A godly king has compassion on his people He cares for his people. He shows the nature of his rule. Do you realize that when Jesus is reigning on earth, there will be no illness for those who love him? None. Because that's what a godly king who is God will do. And the eighth way we know Jesus is king is his commission. The commission of Jesus. When Jesus commissions his disciples to go out into Israel to preach in Matthew 10, he specifically instructs them, preach that the kingdom is coming. Only the king could know the particulars of the coming kingdom. Certainly, Jesus gave them details that they were to preach. In fact, after Jesus commissioned this preaching mission, he affirms from the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry that a battle over the kingdom was being waged. He said in chapter 10, verse 16, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Then not many will be happy to hear about the coming kingdom. Not many will believe. Only the king could have full knowledge and understanding of the spiritual war that would rage about the kingdom. Only the king would know. So the names, the identification, the worship, the forerunner, the temptation, the preaching, the miracles, the commission of Jesus, they all prove that Jesus is king. And how great a king is he? How does Matthew end? Matthew ends with the declaration of Jesus All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That is king of the universe language, isn't it? All authority. Fact number one, Matthew announces the kingdom. Fact number two, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And fact number three, Matthew teaches the kingdom. He teaches the kingdom. What do we learn about the kingdom of God from the gospel of Matthew? Well, first of all, we learn that the kingdom is coming soon. It's coming soon. Chapter 3, verse 2, Matthew records the main message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. This is the exact message that Jesus preached. Chapter 4, verse 17. It's the message he commissions his disciples to preach. Chapter 10, verse 7. The implication is a sense of urgency, a sense of time running out. That was 2,000 years ago. Jesus said time is running out. What do we see now? I would picture the prophetic clock going like this. Second thing we learn about the kingdom, the kingdom is from heaven. The kingdom is from heaven. 
Now, it's true that the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, seems to be used as a, as a substitute for the kingdom of God to give deference to the name of God. But I think it goes much further than that. The theme of the kingdom of heaven is so frequent it's impossible to miss. 15 of the 28 chapters reference the kingdom of heaven. And what does this mean? It's not just a name. It's a kingdom that's not made by men. It's not a kingdom made by men. It's not made in the fashion of men. It's not made by the will of men. It is the kingdom that originates in heaven, is ruled by heaven, and it carries out the very purposes of heaven. And the third thing we learn, the kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. All four times that this term is used in the, in, in, of the kingdom, it's used by Jesus. Jesus gives proof that the kingdom of God is being offered to Israel at this very time by his demonstration of power and casting out demons by the Spirit of God. And when he, when he casts out demons by the Spirit of God, he gives this test. He said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And at any time, all of Israel could have surrounded Jesus and said, You are our true king. He gives a statement about the, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Chapter 19, verse 24, he decrees that tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before the self-righteous do. Chapter 21, verse 31, and only God and only the king can do this. He decrees in chapter 21, verse 33, who will not be part of the kingdom. The fact that the kingdom is the kingdom of God is vital. Because since Jesus is shown to be the king of this kingdom, it affirms for the reader, once again, he is God, man, king. All in one. It's the fourth thing we learn about the kingdom. The kingdom is spiritual and physical. The kingdom is spiritual and physical. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through shows the clear spiritual nature of the kingdom. Jesus teaches about internal attitudes, that, that you're poor in spirit, you're humble, you're seeking righteousness, and so forth. These are internal heart attitudes that characterize the regenerated subject who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount really acts as sort of a kingdom manifesto, the outworking of the soon-coming new covenant. Chapter 13, verse 43, clearly teaches that the kingdom, though, will be inhabited by those who are righteous. What does that tell you? It tells you that the kingdom is also physical in nature. In Matthew 22, he affirms the physical resurrection of all who would receive him as Lord, as Savior, as King. And this certainly paves the way to his own resurrection in Matthew 27. So the kingdom is spiritual and physical. There is no argument between those two. They are both. The fifth thing about the kingdom we learn from Matthew, the kingdom will be a purified kingdom. It will be a purified kingdom. Not everybody's invited. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives several parables to demonstrate this purification. He says the lawless will be thrown into the furnace of fire. The bad fish in his illustration will be thrown away in verse 48. The wicked will be separated from the righteous and thrown into the furnace of fire, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 49, what does this purification look like? It's very simple. To be part of the kingdom, to be purified, you must believe the gospel. You must humbly receive Christ as the one who paid the penalty for your sins, or you cannot be part of the kingdom. You are excluded. 
You must be transferred, according to the Bible, there's only two kingdoms, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of what? Light. There's a sixth thing we learn about the kingdom. And this is so important. The kingdom is the prophesied kingdom of the Old Testament. The kingdom is the prophesied kingdom of the Old Testament. The kingdom spoken of in Matthew is not a revamped version of the kingdom that now centers solely on the church with no more program for national Israel. The Old Testament promises of a kingdom aren't somehow now spiritualized to only mean spiritual truths in the kingdom. No. God promised Abraham that kings would come from him. God promised David that one king would come from him and would reign forever and ever. And God promised both of them that this king would rule in a land that is given, called in the Old Testament the promised land. And this is why Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 is so vital in identifying Jesus as both the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, why is David listed first? Because David was the ultimate king of Israel from whom Jesus has descended. But this is so, so vital. The kingdom is exactly the same kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament. It has to be or God is not consistent. In fact, here's a neat little tidbit. Jesus stated that any scribe, an expert, a teacher in the Old Testament who became a disciple of the kingdom has brought out treasure that is both new and old. What is that? The treasure that's new is everything that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom that the Old Testament doesn't reveal. And the treasure that's old is everything that the the Old Testament has already taught about the kingdom. You put it together and you get a full orbed view of the one single kingdom that has always been predicted. The kingdom will find ultimate fulfillment in the literal earthly reign of King Jesus on the throne of David as predicted in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, He'll be ruling over Israel and all the nations as predicted in Zechariah. One more thing that Matthew teaches us about the kingdom, and this may be obvious as you watch the news, the kingdom has not yet come. The kingdom has not yet come. And yes, you can think, really, I hadn't figured that out yet. The kingdom has not yet come. Jesus presented himself to Israel as her true king. And theoretically, they had the opportunity to receive him and worship him. But his own people rejected him and crucified him. And so from our vantage point, this delayed the coming of the physical aspect of the kingdom of God. The crucifixion and the resurrection of the king paid the penalty for the sins of all who would repent, all who would believe on the king to become part of his kingdom. And in fact, the spiritual transformations of turning subjects of Satan into subjects of King Jesus, this continues, but the world still awaits the physical transformation, the physical rule of the king, first of all in Israel and then over all the nations. We're still waiting for that. Now, Jesus continues to be king of Israel. He continues to be Messiah, but he is not yet king in residence. He hasn't arrived And so Matthew gives us great hope for the kingdom. Matthew announces the kingdom. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Matthew teaches the kingdom. And the last fact I'd like to focus on, and kind of my favorite one this morning, is Israel is the focus of the kingdom. Israel is the focus of the kingdom. To say that God is somehow finished with national Israel or that her rejection of the king has disqualified her permanently 
from being God's chosen nation. This is to ignore a very clear reality as presented in Matthew's chapter one, two, Matthew chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Israel as a nation was bound to fail under the Old Covenant. Why? Because they didn't yet possess the main feature of the New Covenant, which is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And going all the way back to Deuteronomy, God had already predicted Israel her failure. And yet in all the prophets, He promises Israel a future, a restoration, a future, a restoration. But there's one particular key text that informs us how God will restore Israel as the head of all the nations in the coming kingdom. The king will rule over all the nations, separate nations which are clearly delineated as far forward as redemptive history all the way to Revelation 22. In the final state, there are still separate nations, so that's clearly part of God's will. Israel will be the blessing, the pearl, the joy, the center, the highlight of all the nations. Jesus will be the ultimate Israelite, the one who eventually will restore Israel and bring countless blessings to the Gentiles. Jesus will be the the corporate head of Israel, the perfect, ultimate Israelite king, leading first his own beloved nation and then all the nations. And there is that one key text that explains all of that. Turn back with me to Isaiah 49. We read it this morning already. Isaiah 49. We're going to see that God is raising up a servant. One who will so identify with Israel as her leader Listen carefully, that God even calls this servant Israel as the ultimate Israelite. Isaiah 49, verse 3. He, has said, to, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son and declaring, you are my servant Israel. And you might say, well, why is, how do you know it's not talking about the nation? Verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he made me to be remembered. That's not a nation, that's a person. Verse 4, but I said, I have toiled in vain, I have spent my might for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with Yahweh and my reward is with God. This is a rhetorical question, basically, that Christ is, is asking, will, I, will the work I do for you, Father, be in vain? And the answer, of course, is no. And the Son of God answers his own rhetorical question as he reports what God the Father has said to him. This is what God the Son says God the Father has told him. Verse 5. So now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. Stop right there. This is God affirming that the servant will someday raise up the tribes of of Jacob and and restore the nation of Israel to all the glory that it was first meant to have. But God says, that's not enough. That's not enough glory for you. So he keeps going. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
Aren't you glad that God the Father wanted to glorify God the Son to the farthest ends of the earth? If you've been in Bakersfield the last week, this is the ends of the earth right here. Jesus is called Israel as the perfect representative of Israel, not to replace Israel, but as the perfect Israelite who at the end of redemptive history will restore the nation under him. And for all who would say that the church is the new Israel or the Israel and the Gentile nations are now melded unrecognizably together, did you notice in verse 6 that there's a distinction between the, the tribes of Jacob, that's ethnic Israel, and the nations? They're presented as two different entities, yet both blessed and delighted under the salvation of Christ the King. And so Isaiah identifies Jesus with Israel and as the ultimate qualified king of Israel. Now here's the question. Does the gospel of Matthew do the same thing? Before I answer that question, let me give you some highlights of the history of Israel. And that'll prove our point. Let's go through the history of Israel. Israel is based on God's sovereign decision to bring forth a nation from Abraham. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. So when Abraham and Sarah were far past the age of childbearing, God miraculously gave them conception of their son Isaac. Sarah even laughed. She said, I'm so old. It was was hilarious to her. Isaac's son, Jacob, had 12 sons, 10 of whom wickedly got rid of Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, by selling him into slavery, But Joseph ended up, as you know, as the prime minister of Egypt and was sent by God to save the whole area from a coming famine. And in fact, all of Jacob's family of 70 or so were brought to Egypt for for what reason? To take refuge from the danger, take refuge from the famine. But eventually a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph arose and out of fear of Israel, fear that Israel would usurp him, you saw now a jealous and fearful king And this king enslaved the growing hundreds of thousands, then millions of Israelites out of fear. And in fact, to attempt to keep Israel from multiplying, this fearful king ordered the sad slaughter of the baby Israelite boys being born. But God saved one key boy, a baby named Moses, who would lead his people to salvation from Egypt, leading them out of slavery. And so, through Moses, God called Israel out of Egypt and called them to a land that they would inherit. After ten plagues, Pharaoh appeared to let Israel go, but then he recanted. He chased Israel with his army, and God saved Israel miraculously by taking them on dry land through the middle of the Red Sea. And you recall, that was a, that was a fearful thing for them. How would you like to walk through the middle of two walls of water? What was that signifying? It was signifying that they had to trust the Lord. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 2 says that this was the baptism of Israel into Moses. Meaning they owed their lives to God. They essentially had been where they should have drowned and now they're rightly obligated to God. The Red Sea was a baptism of sorts, a declaration of faith in Yahweh. Moses led them through this. And speaking of Moses... As the people were brought to the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses received the word of God, the Ten Commandments, and the prophet taught the people there in the wilderness. But on their then journey toward the promised land, the people were continually beset by fear and by complaining. And eventually, though, it was time for them to take what God had given to them. 
And Moses sent 12 spies to Canaan. When they returned, they reported a glorious land. But you remember the story. 10 out of 12 of the spies were fearful of the people living there. And they talked all the people into being fearful as well. And they distrusted the Lord. And so God condemned that first generation to death. They had no faith. They did not trust the word of God. They did not trust the character of God. And so they died wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The first generation that had been fearful, that had been complaining, even as early as Mount Sinai, they'd been tempted to worship idols already. They were a mess. In fact, Israel had been given a mission. They were supposed to be the light of God to a sinful world. Exodus 19, 4 through 6, God gave them their purpose to be a kingdom of priests, to do what? To show the light of God to the nations around them. And in fact, ideally, Israel was to inhabit this land. They were to live law-abiding lives with the blessing of God just poured upon them such that the nations would come flocking to them in crowds saying, how is it that you are blessed? And they could tell of their God. But instead, not only did they become like their neighbors, they became worse than them. Becoming like their neighbor instead of the other way around, and over time their failure led to the discipline of God. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 1. Think back on Isaiah 49. And that one of the purposes of Christ the servant was to be the ultimate Israelite. To do what Israel could not do. And therefore show himself qualified to be the savior, to be the restorer, to be the king of Israel. Let's go through the history of Israel again. Israel is based on God's sovereign decision to bring forth a nation from Abraham. But Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children. So when Abraham and Sarah were far past the age of childbearing, God miraculously gave them conception of their son, Isaac. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. The genealogy of Jesus Christ starts by asserting that he's descended from the miraculously given Isaac. Look at Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. A miraculous birth. Isaac's son, Jacob, had 12 sons, 10 of whom wickedly got rid of Jacob's favorite, Joseph, by selling him into slavery. Joseph ends up as the prime minister of Egypt and he's sent by God to save the whole area from a coming famine and all of Jacob's family of 70 are brought to Egypt to take refuge from the danger, take refuge from the famine. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and departed for where? Egypt. Why did he do this? In Israel's history, eventually a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph arose. And out of fear of Israel, fear that Israel would usurp him, you saw this jealous and fearful king. And this king enslaved the growing hundreds of thousands and even millions of Israelites out of fear. Jesus took refuge in Egypt because of a jealous king. Matthew 2, verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And in Israel's history, to keep 
Israel from multiplying, or at least to attempt to, this fearful king ordered the sad slaughter of the baby Israelite boys being born. But God saved a key boy, one named Moses, who would lead his people to salvation from Egypt, leading them out of slavery, Matthew 2, verse 16. And when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. So through Moses, God called Israel out of Egypt and called them to a land that they would inherit. Chapter 2, verse 15. And he, that is Jesus, remained there until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. After the ten plagues, Pharaoh appeared to let Israel go, but then he recanted and he chased Israel with his army, and God saved Israel miraculously by taking them on dry land right through the midst of the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10.2 says this was the baptism of Israel into Moses. The Red Sea was a baptism of sort, a declaration of faith and fidelity and loyalty to Yahweh. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you, you, do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What righteousness? The fact that Jesus is walking in the footsteps of Israel, but doing so perfectly. As the people were brought to the wilderness at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses received the word of God and he taught them in the wilderness. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Matthew. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But on Israel's journey toward the promised land, the people were beset by fear and by complaining. It was time to take what God had given them. Moses sent 12 spies to Canaan. When they returned, they reported a glorious land, but 10 of the 12 were fearful. They convinced the rest of the people to be fearful, to distrust the Lord. And so God condemned the first generation to death, to die wandering the wilderness for 40 days. Forty years, rather. The first generation was fearful, complaining. As early as Mount Sinai, they're already worshiping idols. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. You remember that God gave Israel manna in the wilderness after letting them be hungry? Why did he let them hunger? Moses told the second generation why Moses let them hunger. He told them in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, speaking to the second generation, first generation is dead. He says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. But still the people complained. Now what should they have done? What should that first generation have done? 
Even when hungry, they should have believed God. They should have been able to believe Moses that we do not live by bread. We live by the word of God. And now Jesus does what the people should have done when they sinned against the Lord and they're grumbling and complaining. Chapter 4, verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What is he quoting? He's quoting Deuteronomy, Moses' sermon to the second generation, which basically was, here's what the first generation should have done, and Jesus does it. The first generation tested God. Exodus 17 records that the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up from Egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, what shall I do to this people a little more and they will stone me? Then Yahweh said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb And you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contending of the sons of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? After that generation is all dead, Moses preaches to the second generation and he tells them in Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you, meaning your parents, tested him at Massa. Israel should have said, we must not test God. Matthew 4, verse 5, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As early as Mount Sinai, the first generation was tempted to worship other gods. They didn't believe Yahweh was strong enough, a God, to overcome the gods of the Canaanites. And I'm speaking from the perspective of the, of the ancient Near Eastern person. These, this generation all grew up in polytheistic Egypt. And so Moses reminds the second generation of the sin of their fathers. And he, he told them in Deuteronomy 6, 13 and 14, Yahweh your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. The first generation should have said, all the idolatrous generations of Israelites for generation after generation subsequently should have said, Yahweh your God you shall fear. But they didn't. Matthew 4, verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Israel was given the mission. They were supposed to be the light of God to a sinful world. 
their mission is given in, in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. God gave them their purpose to be a kingdom of priests, to show God, to make him big to all the nations around them. But Israel failed in their mission to be a light to the Gentiles. Look with me at Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Ideally, Israel was to inhabit the land, live law-abiding lives with the blessing of God upon them, such that the nations would come flocking to them in crowds. And instead, they became like their neighbors, and they became worse than their neighbors. And over time, their failure led to the discipline of God. But Jesus, chapter 4, verse 23 Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, these are Gentile areas, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The early life of Jesus proves that the Messiah of Isaiah 49 is living as the ultimate Israelite. He is doing everything that Israel could not do. Jesus is the qualified Messiah. Why would he play this role? Not to do away with Israel, but again, So now, says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him. I will also give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus will succeed where Israel failed and the gospel will go forth to the world as a result. Israel is the focus of the kingdom. This kingdom will be restored and there will be a worldwide blessing to Gentile nations because the true and perfect Israelite succeeded in every way that Israel failed. And he purchased kingdom citizens for himself by going to the cross, ironically crucified by the very nation that he came to save by grace, so that in the coming kingdom of Christ, reigning on the throne of his father David, all the nations will bask in the light and in the glory of the king of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords hard to believe it was 1,600 years ago that John Chrysostom ended his 17-point introductory sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, and he said that the kingdom of God is like a great city. He's truly the golden-mouthed one, and he said the kingdom of God is a great city, and that through the Gospel of Matthew, you might enter that city. He said this, Let us mark her foundations, her gates consisting of sapphires and pearls, for indeed we have in Matthew an excellent guide, and through his gate we shall now enter in. And much diligence is required on our part, for should he see any one not attentive, he casts him out of the city. 
Yes, for the city is most kingly and glorious, not as the cities with us, divided into a marketplace and the royal courts. For in God's city all is the court of the king. Let us open, therefore, the gates of our minds. Let us open our ears. And with great trembling, when on the point of setting foot on the threshold, let us worship the king that is therein. Let us not, therefore, with noise or tumult enter in, but with a mystical silence. For Matthew is not the letter of any earthly master, but of the Lord of angels. The grace itself of the Spirit will lead us in great perfection. And we shall arrive at the very royal throne and attain to all the good things by the grace and love towards man of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory and might, together with the Father and the Holy Ghost, now and always, even forever and ever. Amen. That's an introduction to a gospel. The Gospel of Matthew is the gateway into the glorious city, which is the kingdom of heaven. It is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now transfixed in our hearts and astounded. We're so thankful for the journey that awaits us together. Should Christ tarry and we have time to get all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, we trust that it will be a time in which we enter into that city, that glorious kingdom, and we, we have our minds enlightened to understand the kingdom. We have our hearts enlightened to yearn for the kingdom. And so, Lord, we thank you for the king. We thank you for the coming kingdom. We thank you that you have given Christ so much glory that he would rule over Gentile nations as well, in which we are included. And so, Lord, we now think on what it took to bring us into the kingdom. It took the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It took the death of the king who came not as a king, but as a slave. Not in glory, but in degradation. And so now, Lord, we turn our hearts to remember the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord's table. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.